Acts chapter 2. You have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Picking up in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day to truly come and to give you thanks for all your goodness, for all your mercies, God. We, we gather together, brothers and sisters, standing side by side to bring you the praise and the glory that you so richly deserve. And so we ask now, Father, that as we open your word and we reflect upon these, these verses that we've just read aloud, God, that you would illuminate our minds, you would enlighten our hearts and our souls to to a greater depth, Father, that we would know you better and you would help us to discern what is best. How do we continue to best glorify you with our lives and everything that you've entrusted to us? We thank you for this privilege. We are humbled by this opportunity. We are humbled by this grace. And so now we submit all these things to you and expectantly look for you to lead us today and in these next few moments. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so Derek Simmons was an individual. He was a young man originally, I think, from Alabama, if I'm not mistaken. And he and his wife, Jessica, had recently moved to Florida, probably about five, six years ago, if I'm not mistaken. And it was during the summer months when you see a lot of vacationers there on the beach in Florida. And he and his wife, along with a few other family members, were out on the beach as well. And they we're getting ready to settle down for a picnic dinner on the beach, which in and of itself to me is, is quite the challenge, right? Because it's hard to get more food in your mouth than you get sand in your mouth. But there they were, getting ready to enjoy a picnic, when all of a sudden they heard this commotion. And all these people started to kind of run and, and uh, gather at this place that was a little bit closer to the pier that wasn't too far from them. And, and they could see something was going on. And so they looked up and they noticed that, that something had happened. Now, their first assumption was that it was a shark. Uh, sharks were apparently common in this particular area. But they decided to look into it and, and to kind of explore it a little bit further. So they got up and they got closer and they called out to the people that had kind of waded out into the waters. And they asked them if everything was okay. And the person that was the furthest out... Uh, closest to the situation that could see these people in distress about 100 yards out, turned back and said, no, not every, everything's not all right. There are folks, this family has been caught in this riptide and they can't get back to shore. I'm trying to get to them, but the currents are too strong. And so immediately, Derek and Jessica, having seen that, yeah, about 100 yards away, these people were in this great distress, a collection of folks, uh, begins to kick into action. They decide to do something about it, and they, they come up with this plan, and they start telling people, hey, we're going to gather together, and we're going to form kind of a human chain to get out into the ocean. Uh, but initially, when people heard this, they were a little resistant to the idea. They were fearful that if they were to participate in this, they too would get swept away in these strong currents. And so they were a little hesitant, but, but through Derek and Jessica's urging, they were going up and down the beach saying, we need more people, we need more people, crying out with urgency. And next thing you knew, all these people descended upon this area and a human chain formed, about 80 people long. About 80 people locked arm in arm going out into these waters, out into these waves. And that allowed Jessica and Derek to get close enough, get on the boogie boards, and actually find themselves out where these people were distressed. And here's what they found. They found this family. The, the two youngest were Stephen and Noah Ursi, I think is their last name. And they were 8 and 11. And so Derek's able to grab them and put them on this little boogie board and get them down this human train, get his brother in, and then, and then they get mom in, Roberta, and then she comes in. They discovered that uh, their grandmother was out there. She was about 67 years old, actually had a heart attack out of the distress of trying to tread water. They get her in. And they also discovered that it was more than just this family, that there were other people that had actually also gone out there to try to rescue these people, but they had swum out on their own, swam out on their own, swim, swum, swim, swam out on their own, and, and they got caught in the current as well. 
And so they needed to be rescued. And so one by one, they bring all these people down this chain and get them safely to shore. And as soon as they get the last person there, the entire chain of people just kind of erupts with jubilation, right? They're high-fiving each other. They're, they're excited. They're celebrating. They can't believe it because of what, what had just happened. And so the mom, who was interviewed after the fact, said, you know, we were stranded out there. We were doing everything we could to get in, and nothing would work. This was our only hope. These people saved our lives. And so the reporter's you know, obviously began to interview Derek because he was the one that kind of came up with the idea, but even he was humble about it, saying, look, it was my idea, but I couldn't have done this if we didn't have an anchor, and if we didn't have all these people lined up along the way. This was, this was not possible without all of us, and so it became this really powerful story. The first moment I heard it, I thought, that, that'll preach. I don't know how yet, but that'll preach, right? And it's this great demonstration of what can happen when people work together. Right? And, and the power that comes with it. And, and, I, and I thought about this story, and I felt like it has such a wonderful arc for the discussion that I want us to go through today. And so there are several connections that I want you to make with this story. But before I do, let me give you a quick recap of where we are in this series. Right? We've been talking about God's promises really all year. And as we started this series in the book of Acts, we've been talking specifically about uh, waiting on God's promises. You know, the promise of the Holy Spirit that is ultimately going to give rise to the promise of the church. And how do we wait on these promises? Then we see this promise uh, revealed and poured out on God's people. We, we see Peter proclaim it. We see the church respond to it. And then you get to verses 42 through 47, where we were last week. And we're going to be again today. And it's there that we first find a true description of what it looks like when people actually cling to the promises of God. Or what does it look like to stand on God's promises. And what we talked about last week is that your response to the promises of God is a life of devotion, right? This unswerving commitment, this steadfastness. And this devoted life leads to a devoted church. And we talked about some of the characteristics of the devoted church last week. The devoted church is a learning church. It's a loving church. It's a worshiping church. It's an inspiring church. And this week we're going to see that a devoted church is a generous church. It's a giving church. And part of how we're going to see that, though, is how that generosity is revealed through the power of togetherness. So we're going to focus on verses 44 and 45. But with that being said, let me make some connections here. Because today is a discussion on generosity. And it's on the nature of this giving. And we're going to walk through that in quite some detail. But there are some lessons and connections I want us to make from this story. First and foremost, Derek and Jessica were able to identify a need. Right? They, they were looking up. They saw the commotion. They heard the commotion, and so they saw the need, and they knew they could have responded to it. They needed to respond to it. They had a choice to keep eating their own dinner and focusing on their own vacation, but they decided to respond to the need. That is something that is going to drive generosity that we're going to look at today. Right? It is easy for us to fail in, in our generosity because we become so inwardly focused. And we often neglect the needs of people around us. So that's going to be something that we have to dive into today. In addition to that, once they saw the need, they didn't operate out of their assumptions. Now, they had a logical assumption. Could be a shark. Those are common. But they sought to understand. Right? They stood up and they asked questions. They wanted clarity. What's really going on? Again, when we think about being generous... When we think about how we respond through the act of giving, a lot of times we don't have the impact that we should because we're giving based out of our assumptions. And so there's something that we said for reaching out and asking for a voice of clarity that can say, no, here's what the real need is. Here's what needs to be done. Then you can actually see the need that transforms in this story or that unfolds in this story. Right here you have these people that are caught in the waves of the riptide. Right? In tremendous distress to the point where there's nothing they can do to rescue themselves. They're in tremendous need. And that is the reality for us in the church. When we think about generosity, what we're trying to do is save those that are caught in a riptide of life. Right? They're, they're getting lost in the waves of depression. They're getting lost in the waves of loneliness, the waves of addiction, the waves of complacency, the waves of lostness, you name it. And so we're, we're being able to be called, or we're being called to be mobilized to speak to those needs. And so what happens then is we work together in order to do that. If we were to work alone, right, uh, we often get overwhelmed by those needs on our own, right? People that swam out 
in their own efforts, they too got lost in those waves. And so if we think that we can do these things in isolation, it oftentimes can be overwhelming for us. There is strength in working together. That is how generosity is best experienced and expressed. And when we do this and we work so well together, it'll lead to a place of praise and joy and celebration. Because all of a sudden, we get to see that we can lock arm in arm, stand side by side, and become ambassadors of rescue. And that's the real heart behind generosity. And that's what we want to pursue today. So here's some context to this conversation. Okay, because some of you are aware of this and some of you aren't. Uh, in, in March of 2017, I was new here, a couple months in, and we had just started a series on our key convictions. And if you've been with us for any amount of time, hopefully you've seen those listed or heard them mentioned or preached on or something. But in March, we hit on the key conviction of holistic giving. It's the first time I talked and preached uh, in this church about giving and money. And that's a difficult, tricky subject, right? Because a lot of times people just begin to gloss over, oh no, here we go. We have to talk about money. And yes, we do. Uh, But part of what we wanted to achieve, and the reason I'm highlighting that conversation is because I'm going to pull from a lot of what I said back in March. Now, I realize some of you were there, and so some of this might sound familiar, but many of you weren't. But even then, I think some of this is worth repeating. But there is a distinct difference. Uh, In that message in March, there there was a, a desire that I felt God had laid on my heart to really try to deconstruct the castle of materialism, right, and to really work through those things. And so, I believe that's still an important piece. We're going to hit on materialism a little bit today, but I offered as context because I, I would encourage you, if you have time, to go find that message. We have it archived on the website and to go and listen to that message on holistic giving, and, and that can help shape part of this narrative. But as I prayed and really wrestled with what do we need to, to take from this text today, I didn't want us to just focus on materialism because that message can often carry a level of guilt, a level of... Uh, obligation, and all those sorts of things. And what I want us to do was be encouraged, to be um, inspired by the power of what happens when we work together. And I think that's a little bit more appropriate to what we see in this passage today. And that's part of why I used that story to begin. And so let me reread for you these verses. And this is going to be how we navigate this conversation, just verse 44 and verses 45. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who was in need. Okay, so when you read that, we're going to kind of extrapolate some of the details of this text as we go through this message. But if I were to just kind of divide it in two broad categories, you look at those verses and what you see is that there's this ability to identify the need and then to work together. And so that's how I want us to have this conversation today is to wrestle with how do we identify needs and then how do we work together and how does that foster within us the spirit of generosity. And so let's first look at how we identify needs. And in order for us to do this, in order for us to see needs clearly, we need to first ask ourselves, well, what is it that blinds us to actually be able to see those needs clearly and then effectively respond? And this is where I do want to briefly touch on materialism and how it can blind us, but then also Spend some time working through some incorrect assumptions that we often carry that can limit our effectiveness and our understanding of generosity. Okay, so let's, let's first look at what blinds us, and let's deal with the issue of materialism. Okay, I don't think it's hard for us to see that we live in a materialistic culture. I could, I could give you stat after stat and, and example after example. I think we can all just agree to that. And part of what we would see if we were to really work through those scenarios and those examples, it sees that ultimately materialism forces us to be inwardly focused, right? We begin to structure our response and our perception of money, generosity, possessions, all those things based on our perceived wants and needs. And so we become inwardly focused, and when that happens, we often are blinded to the needs around us. And we don't see as clearly as we should. And there's this quote that that I came across several years ago. I read it to you in March, I'm going to read it to you again, that I feel like really captures this blindness and the risk that we, that we run when we don't truly think as critically as we need to. This comes from David Platt in his book, Radical, that he wrote several years ago. Here's what he says. We look back on slave-owning churchgoers of 150 years ago, and we ask, how could they have treated their fellow human beings that way? I wonder if followers of Christ 150 years from now will look back at Christians in America today and ask, How could they live in such big houses? 
How could they drive such nice cars and wear such nice clothes? How could they live in such affluence with thousands of children while thousands of children were dying because they didn't have food or water? How could they go on with their lives as though the billions of poor didn't even exist? It's a very convicting quote, and it's one that we need to at least um, reflect upon and wrestle with a little bit, right? That this is this There are these tendencies to become inwardly focused to the point that we neglect some of these needs around us. Here's how we've seen this play out recently in church history. Randy Alcorn is another author that I'm going to be referencing throughout this message today. He's written a lot of great material on this subject that I would recommend. And he had highlighted, he was the first one that I saw highlight this fact, though I've seen it uh, repeated in other venues and other settings, is that over the last 30 years, Right? The, the more uh, the, the, the conversation of generosity and giving has become taboo, the less the church has really begun to talk about it. And as a result, people are giving less. There has been a steady decline in giving as a whole in America for the last 30 years to the point, to the point that now, dollar for dollar, Americans are giving less today than they did during the Great Depression. And that should very much unsettle us. There is a greater expression of generosity in the Great Depression than there is today. That is an indictment on how materialism can blind us. And so part of what I want us to just briefly acknowledge with this issue is that we're all susceptible to it. And so part of what we need to do is to think critically of our own lives, to think critically of our own habits, our own priorities, and recognize for a moment that all of us are going to have to stand before God and give an account for our life. And we're going to have to answer with what we did with our life and what was given to us and what was entrusted to us. And so the first thing we need to do to prevent these blinders from warping our sense of generosity is to set aside these materialistic tendencies. And when we do that, we can look up. We can see clearly, right? This would have been the equivalent of Derek and Jessica just eating their meal to the neglect of people drowning all around them. But what they do? They looked up. So when you look up and all of a sudden you see needs, all of a sudden it's the needs of others that are going to shape our understanding of generosity. But this is where we also need to work through how that response can be effective by not just falling victim to some of our assumptions. So when we have conversations about generosity and giving in the church, there are certain assumptions that I think we need to address. Here's one of the first assumptions that I know I sense uh, on this side of things, and I think we all maybe sense it sometimes, is that we'll hear statistics like that and we'll read quotes like that and we'll just assume that nobody really wants to be generous anymore. And that's the assumption. People don't have a heart for generosity. Now, I would be willing to wager that that's true for a lot of people, especially those still caught up in the throes of materialism. I don't know how true that is in our churches. For sure not what I see in this church. Right? What I see and what we need to work beyond is not that people don't have the heart for generosity. I think people just don't always know how to be generous. So more than it's a heart issue, it's a how issue. How can I practice this? Let me give you a couple examples. When we begin to wrestle with the how of generosity, I think we hit philosophical barriers and practical barriers, okay? So philosophically, maybe you're like me. You read a passage like what we just read, and if you're like me, I'm going, how do I apply that? Like, am I supposed to go home and sell everything? Is, is that what I'm supposed to do? And we start having these extreme reactions to the scripture. And we have these polarizing senses. And it all of a sudden feels that we either need to look at possessions as always being evil, or we dismiss the conviction that we have, and so we don't worry about it, and so now everything is always good. And we assign a moral value to money. Right? It's either always evil or it's always good. And we vacillate back and forth between these two extremes and it ultimately paralyzes us. And the reality is, is that scriptures don't teach us that, that money has any sort of moral value. It's how it's used. Right? First Timothy 6 is going to say what? It is those who are eager to be rich, those who desire to get rich, those who have a love for money. That's when it becomes the source of all kind of evil. Money can be used for good purposes or bad. And so when we have these extremes and we assign this moral value to it, then all of a sudden we become paralyzed. And so what are we supposed to do practically with a passage like this? Well, here's what I would say. First and foremost, when you look at some of the words that are described, you see words like property. In this particular time period, um, if you owned property, you were very affluent. 
Many of the churchgoers at this time likely weren't owners of property. And so this is speaking to a particular segment where people are saying, listen, I'm willing to forego my possessions, my property, my, my label, my title of wealth. So it wasn't that the wealthy were saying, hey, I'm going to keep what's mine and just buy more property for others. This was a level of sacrifice. This is one of the first elements of generosity. It was so sacrificial in nature. They were saying, my identity and wealth pales in comparison to my identity in Christ. And so I'm willing to surrender and provide great sacrifice if it means that this gospel message can get out there. So, so that's one thing we see. Then you have possessions. Now, possessions could apply to anybody. Now, it doesn't matter if that's wealthy or poor. Anybody that had some form of possession could walk around and see, how can I take this and use this for God's purposes? And maybe that is a direct application for you and me. Right? Maybe what we can do this next week is spend time on our own or maybe with our family, with our children, with our parents, whatever, and prayer walk through our homes and just take stock of our possessions and figure out if there's anything in there that God wants us to surrender, to either give to someone or sell so that we can take that money and contribute to something else. Maybe that's what we need to do, but that can be done by anyone. But part of what you see is that this is a measure of sacrifice, critical thinking, and, and surrendering things that they own so they can help declare the good news of Jesus. Now, does this mean that every believer is being commanded to sell all their possessions? No. And the reason I say that is because you can keep reading, right? Where did they meet? They met in the temple courts and in each other's homes, right? So this wasn't a wholesale blanket every believer for all time needs to go ahead and sell everything. But clearly this community of faith was driven by the needs of others. Now what we do know is that the verbs that are used in these texts are, 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 in, these texts are in an imperfect tense, which means it was ongoing, it was consistent behavior. This wasn't just a one-time, hey, let's get this church plant started sort of contribution. This was a practice that was constantly responding to the needs of others. All right, so part of what we need to see is that we have this capacity to then to work through this in a greater spirit and think through, how do we do this? We do it through this mindset of critical thinking, prayerful consideration, and responding to the needs of others. Now, if we do that, that helps us set aside that philosophical assumption. Practically, I think part of what struggles, the struggle we have with the how is that many of us just face a budgeting issue driven by our culture today. We're in a culture that is constantly filled with debt, right? Students graduate college all the time with mounting student loans. We have credit card debt. And across the ages, we have jobs that maybe aren't as lucrative as we thought they were going to be. And so the debt mounts. And then we have this expense and this expense. I have to care for aging parents. I have to do this. And the next thing you know, you're thinking, I want to be generous, but I have no idea how. And it's a budgeting issue. It's, a, it's an evaluation of how do I manage the things that God has been given to me. And so that's something that I want you to know. If that's you, regardless of age, we want to have that conversation with you. That's part of what the stewardship team is able to do, or, or Kathy, some of the folks in our staff that are entrusted with that role and gifted in that role. We, we want to help on the practical side as well. So if we do this, all of a sudden we begin to work through those assumptions together. Now, here's one of the things that can often happen that can lead to the second assumption, is that all of a sudden I'm paralyzed by these philosophical and practical challenges, and so I just need the easy answer. And Lord knows, through the years, the church has settled on an easy answer, which leads us to the second assumption I want us to wrestle with, which is the assumption of tithing, okay? Because here's what the church has done. Tithe literally means a tenth part. So we've taken this word, and we've created a formula. What should you give? 10%. One-tenth. 10% of your earnings. And that's a, that's a good answer. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem I have with it, and the reason I want to challenge it as an assumption, is I struggle with it biblically and practically. So here's where I struggle with it biblically, and a lot of this, again, is coming from Randy Alcorn and his work. If you go back to the Old Testament, absolutely, the Old Testament refers to tithes and a part of their practice to give a tenth of what they had possessed or what they owned. But when you really study it, you know there were three different tithes that they were called to adhere to at different times throughout the year. A tithing that would go to the Levites and the priests, a tithing that would go to the festivals, and a tithing that would go to the orphans and the widows. And when you, actually, when you actually do the math on the frequency and the amount, it really kind of comes out closer to 23% than it does 10%. 
And this doesn't factor in the free will offerings that you see mentioned in the Old Testament that often have more of an open-ended command that says to give as you feel led, to give as you wish. And so the reality is, if you really break down into it, there's not a clear, concise formula in the Old Testament that says just give 10%. The reality is it could have been 30, 50, 80. We don't know because it wasn't about a formula. And that's part of what I want us to challenge, is that when we begin to embrace a style of generosity that's driven by a formula, we limit what God can do in us and through us. So what we want to teach is something a little bit more comprehensive, something that leads us more into an act of worship. When we reduce it to a formula, we put God on the same level as our utility bills. And our tithing feels the same as paying an electric bill. And I don't believe that's what God wants, because it is an act of of worship. Deuteronomy 14.23 says what? Do these things so that you can learn what it means to revere the Lord your God always. <laughs> it's an act of worship. And so here's what we teach in this church is that the biblical basis for generosity is that we should give sacrificially, generously, and cheerfully. That's what we want to be about. More than a formula, more than a number amount. We want you as believers, as followers, to spend the time to wrestle with what would be a sacrificial, generous, and cheerful gift. And so sacrifice, this is what the Lord calls us to, right? He wants us to give uh, out of the greatest things that we've been given, not the leftovers. Take your firstborn, take your first fruit, take the, the animal without blemish. That's what the Lord wants, not your leftovers, right? You don't set your budget and all these things and then whatever's left over, that's what God gets, right? It's got to be sacrificial. There's got to be a level of, of pain that's associated with it. It needs to be generous, right? It, it, it's got to be something that we want to give it abundantly, to something, not in scarcity to something. And it should inquire or it should elicit some measure of joy within you. It should be cheerful. And so if at any point one of those three things is off, then we're falling of the standard of worship that God wants us to see in our giving and in our generosity. And the other thing that we need to see in terms of an act of worship is that whenever Jesus instructs us in certain practices that are going to help us worship God, he wants consistent obedience, right? That's what he desires. He wants consistent obedience. Think about it. When he teaches on prayer, is he suggesting then that you should just pray every once in a while? As you can, when you have time? Or is he saying, no, be disciplined in this. Commit to this. Submit to it regularly, consistently. When he talks about, you're not just living on bread alone, but on the very word of God, is he saying just read God's word occasionally? Sporadically, when you feel inspired? No, he's saying meditate. Reflect on it. Let it be the foundation for your life. So when he's talking about giving and he's talking about generosity, it needs to be a consistent practice of obedience for it to be an act of worship. So what does that look like for us practically? Here's what I want to call your attention to. Um, hopefully you were able to come in and get one of these in your worship guides today. If you didn't, please find one before you leave. These are commitment cards, and here's what I'm asking you to do. If you read through this, you're going to see that much of what we have on here reflects this conversation we've been having throughout the year to celebrate our 90-year anniversary, right? And this is a card that's going to prompt you to kind of work through some of these challenges that we've put in front of you. And for the next two weeks, I want you to pray through these challenges and look at some of them, right? I want you to be praying through whether or not your life is in step with the Spirit. We've been talking about that over and over. Have you spent intentional time reflecting on, yes, I know where God is leading. I know what he's called me to do, and I know that I'm taking steps of obedience in those things. I want you to think about this, this desire for us to be um, a church that engages lostness, that impacts nominality, that, that we are disciples who make disciples. And so who are the people in your life who are far from God that you need to be praying for, that you need to be fostering relationships with? Who are three people? that you would commit to praying to and that you would commit to investing in? Have you identified those folks? And then have you embraced this challenge to, to be uh, one who is going to give sacrificially and generously? And so over the next couple of weeks, whether this is by yourself or with your family, have that conversation. Make it an act of worship. Make it an act of prayer. Talk about what God has entrusted to you and come to a decision where you can say, you know, if we did this, this would bring joy to our family. This would be sacrificial. This would be generous. And I'm willing to commit to it so we can see what God will do. Have that conversation. Think about where he might lead you to serve. And then once you've gone through those things, this actually has a perforated edge. And so I want you to, to take your time. And once you've really prayed through it as a family, I want you to, to rip that part off. And the blue part, I want you to keep. 
I want you to put it somewhere where you're going to see it, whether that's on your bathroom mirror, maybe somewhere in your car, on your refrigerator, somewhere you're going to see, and you're going to be reminded of the commitment that you've made. And then this other larger section, I want you to bring it back on June 2nd. Because this is going to be an act of worship. We're going to come and we're going to bring these before God and before each other. We're going to lay them at the altar as a tangible expression of our commitment to what God is doing. And we're going to demonstrate this one to another. And so take this, pray over it, make it an act of worship and commit to these things. And if we do that, I think we'll go beyond this concept of just a formulaic approach to generosity. Now, the third quick assumption that I want to run through that hopefully will help you as you pray through these things is that the other issue that can often serve as a hindrance in our effectiveness of generosity is all of a sudden we lose trust in the church. Here is a preacher. He just wants more money. Every institution, they just want nicer things. And so we begin to withhold because we don't trust where we're directing these funds, where we're directing these gifts. And can I just acknowledge, and I don't speak for this church directly because I believe things have been good here, but I understand when you look at us culturally, there's a reason the church has lost trust. How many failings have we had to watch? Failings of of morality, failings of competency, of integrity. We see a distortion of the gospel. People that will get up and and ask for the generosity of God's people just so they can use it on themselves. Or distort a gospel saying, the more you're generous, the more God's going to give to you. And it's not the gospel. And people see that it's hollow, they see that it's empty, and they lose their trust. And so let me repent on behalf of brothers and sisters that have distorted that message and say, yeah, we need to do the hard work to earn that trust back. And we need to be ambassadors for that trust here. And part of what we see maybe is kind of an offshoot of that is that then all of a sudden we kind of fall into these habits that that I can maintain this personal control over my offerings, over my generosity. And all of a sudden, our pocketbook becomes a vote. And so maybe we don't fully trust what's happening in our church. Again, this is what I see more culturally, but it is something we can all be victim to. Is so, so now I disagree with things I'm seeing. I don't like the way worship is going. I don't like this philosophy of discipleship. I don't like this pastor. I don't like this minister. I don't like this program. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to withhold. I'm still going to come, but I'm not going to give. And it's passive-aggressive, and it's wildly individualistic. It is the opposite of committing to one another and surrendering to the Lord. So we have to break through the assumption that the church isn't trustworthy. And part of that is by repenting where we have fallen. And the only thing I can do today for our congregation is to remind you of some of the values and principles that are going to lead us in terms of generosity. And I've said this to you before. I'll say it again. For me personally, I'm not going to be a pastor that comes before you and tries to encourage you so that we can build bigger barns. I don't want us to be a church that sits on piles of cash. I don't envision a day where I'm saying, hey, let's build a bigger building that's state-of-the-art. I love what we've been given. And that will be content. Right? Because here's what I believe. I believe God called people 90 years ago to this neighborhood and to this campus. And we are beneficiaries of that call. And these things have been entrusted to you and me, and we need to be stewards of it. So we're going to be good stewards of what's been given to us, and that's tricky. Right? What is that line of affluence and ostentatiousness versus just being... Uh, good stewards. It's hard to know. But I can tell you I'm going to be open and transparent with you about it. And I'm going to tell you that we're going to submit it in prayer. And here are some of the things we're going to do. We're going to take care of what's been given to us. So for me, when you see wallpaper peeling off the walls in your fellowship hall, it's okay to update it. When you see stains on your carpet that you've had for years and years, it's okay to update it. And so I may say, hey, let's, let's raise some money for that. Let's be good stewards of what's been given to us. But here's what we're going to do. Anytime we raise money for ourselves, we're going to raise money for people beyond ourselves. That's the whole spirit of the 90 and 90 campaign in October. Hey, if we're going to raise money to, to do some improvements here, we're going to look to the needs of the community. And we're going to help schools. We're going to help those who need homes. And we're going to help those that are caught in terrible situations. And we're going to match it. And we're going to maintain that sort of commitment. And that's to stay anchored to this gospel and continue to build the sort of trust so that ultimately we become a church that's known for its generosity. 
And so hopefully if we do these things, we begin to shed these assumptions and we begin to see what is more clearly articulated as the needs. Now all of a sudden we can hear the voice speaking back to us saying, this is what you should do. And that voice comes from Christ. Here's some of the things that begin to shape our understanding of generosity. I think this is really important. Uh, Alcorn points out that there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,350 verses in the scriptures related to money, which is more than the verses we have on faith and prayer combined. And so I know sometimes we walk into these rooms and we think, God, why do we have to talk about money? Can I tell you we're doing it because it's in the scripture. Right? If we don't talk about money and how the gospel should impact our generosity, we are no longer being biblically guided. We're picking and choosing what we think can make us more comfortable. Right? So we can come in here and argue about theological matters and all these other points and then return to our affluence and our comfort while many people still suffer in the shackles of poverty. We're not going to do it. If Jesus teaches on it, which he does, then we're going to listen to it. And think about how Jesus radically changes our understanding of generosity. First of all, he says, I've come to preach and proclaim good news to the poor. And this is an area of focus, right? How you care for the the marginalized, the impoverished, the poverty, the injustices around you. He speaks to those that are fluent, like the rich young ruler. And what does he say? Sell everything you own. Then come follow me. And then he turns to his disciples, don't you know it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven? It radically changes their understanding. He points to the widow's offering, right, who could barely give anything. And her amount paled in comparison to what others could give. But what what does Jesus say? No, that's who you want to be like because she gave out of her poverty. Everybody else gave out of their abundance, right? So it's not about an amount. I'm not going to be impressed by an amount. I want to know if it's sacrificial. It doesn't matter if it's $10 or $10,000. What does it do to you? Has God led you on that journey of sacrifice? Jesus sends out the 12 and the 72. What does he say? Take nothing with you. <laughs> don't, don't form a budget. Trust. Right? There's something freeing about how Jesus radically transforms our understanding of generosity and loosens our grip on possessions and material things. And that needs to be evident in our lives. And so what Luke is doing in the book of Acts is he's saying, listen, this is how Jesus demonstrated this. This is how Jesus taught on it. And now it's being reflected in the church. And so you see verses like this that we've just read. You're going to see numerous more examples as we go through the book of Acts. And you're going to see it taught on later in the New Testament. This is a natural mark and response to the gospel. So if we can do these things, we hear this voice most clearly. What we're going to see is that that Jesus is radically changing our understanding of generosity by leading us to another critical piece that I want to emphasize today where generosity is most powerful and most effective when it is done together. I love this. So, so here in this verse it says, they had everything in common. That word common is koinonia, right? And so there's this shared life that is now taking place with the church. And what's interesting is, is that in another letter to the church in Corinth, Paul references taking up a collection, and he uses a word that is derived from this same word koinonia, meaning collection kind of has the same feeling, which begins to, to shape our understanding of what it means to have something in common, what the shared life is. The shared life is not just about things that you can share with one another. It's not just about what you receive. It's what you give together. (laughs) I love that. So now all of a sudden we get to see the impact when believers gather together and do so with a spirit of generosity. Uh, Relevant Magazine put together an article not too long ago. I shared this with you guys a couple years ago as well because it was so uh, inspiring to me. They recognize, again, these trends in giving. Right, that it's been going down and Americans have given less now than they did during the Great Depression. And so they asked the question, well, what if everybody just at least agreed to the formula? What, what if we at least gave 10%, which we've already challenged that assumption, but for the sake of math, we're going to use it here. If everyone, if every believer gave just 10%, here's what would happen. There would be an additional $165 billion for churches to use and distribute. The global impact would be phenomenal. Here's just a few things a church could do with this kind of money. $25 billion could relieve global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases in five years. $12 billion could be used to eliminate illiteracy in five years. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues. $1 billion could fully fund all overseas missions work. And then you know what we would have? We'd have $100 billion 
dollars left over to say what else? So imagine that. Imagine for a moment a church that erupts with the spirit of generosity. That all of a sudden we could say, okay, we've cured hunger, we've cured preventable diseases, we've given clean water, we've cured illiteracy, we have sent people all over the world into lostness, now what? That's the untapped potential of generosity that exists in the church. And that should inspire us because that's what can happen when we work together. Now, let's zero in. What does that look like for you and for me? How do we play a part in that? So here's what I want you to be encouraged in church. Here's what I see. When I look out into this congregation, I see the embers. I see the kindling of profound generosity welling up within us. Let me explain to you why I see that. A couple of things that I've observed just in the last couple of years. You know, last year, uh, we, we have an annual budget of you know, one, a little over a million dollars. And last year, I think your, your generosity equated to around $1.1 million. You know, that was the most this church has brought in in a decade. That was the most in 10 years. Praise God. Because God is stirring something within your heart to be more generous. And here are some of the things that take place as a result of that generosity that you may not always know. You know there were starving children in Venezuela? I mean, literally children who were dying in their classrooms because of hunger. And so our missionaries that serve in Colombia, the Cook family, they reached out and they said, is there anything we can do? We're partnering with these other workers in Venezuela. Can y'all do anything? And you know what we did? We sponsored churches to give the hungry food. We've partnered with people in India to help with theological training, to help with missionaries, to help with orphan care. Every time a trip is mobilized, we have thousands of dollars of scholarships that are given to people so that they can go and see God move across cultures. Every Thanksgiving, you guys give out of your own generosity so that other people during Thanksgiving can have food to eat and gifts to give. It is a tremendous kindling for generosity, but I would tell you we're not all the way there. I believe God wants to do more. I want to lay out for you this vision that I think can really begin to inspire us when we work together. First of all, we need to recognize that you and I, at this point in time, we face a challenge. As it stands today, we, we are faced with hundreds and thousands of dollars of debt because of our roof situation. Something that none of us wanted, to no fault of our own, but it's the reality of our circumstances, and it's not going away. And so we face a challenge where right now our expenses are outpacing our income. And as a result, it's, it's limiting our ability to dream and vision what God can do in us and through us. But I believe that the strength of our generosity together is greater than that challenge. And I believe that if we truly take this commitment as an act of worship, we can get through the rest of this year and in this fiscal year having addressed those needs and ending in a very strong financial position. And that will just be the beginning. I believe that come October, we will be able to embrace this 90 and 90 campaign and make this cumulative goal of $180,000 and exceed it. That's what I believe. And we'll celebrate that it's exceeded, not because we're going to come together and applaud and pat ourselves on the back for some monetary value, but because you and I are going to be overwhelmed with stories of children being impacted in schools, girls being rescued from difficult situations, and other children finding forever homes. I believe there's going to be an era that we're just on the cusp of where we sit around and we think about what more can we do, not what can we cut back. I believe we're going to live into this era where we're giving Bibles to people that are unreached, where we're drilling wells that are needed, we're sending people all over the world, and we're able to critically meet the needs of this community, and we become a church that's known for its generosity. That's what I believe where we're headed. And I believe God is stirring that within all of us, and we're going to be able to marvel and give praise with what God can do when we work together. That all of a sudden, we're going to be able to stand arm in arm, side by side, and wade out into the waves of this world and be ambassadors of rescue. That's where we're headed. So I want to close with this. <clears throat> I want to close with one story that I believe pulls it all together in a very meaningful and practical way. I want to talk to you about David Jacks. Now when I say that name, some of you in this room probably already know who I'm talking about. But many of you don't. And David Jacks was a young man who was born in Georgia. 
And that's where he spent the first 36 years of his life. And those first 36 years were filled with more personal tragedy and loss than many of us will ever experience in a lifetime. When he was uh, young, just at the age of two, he lost his mom. So he didn't have the chance to even know who she was, to know her story, to know her laugh. Uh, Thankfully, his dad remarried, and so he did grow up with a stepmother. But his stepmom passed away when he was 19 years old, so the majority of his life, he never really had that maternal figure. And so shortly after his stepmother's passing, he was married, and a year into his marriage, he had a baby girl, Ruby May. And Ruby May, I'm sure, just like many of the young parents in this room are experiencing for the first time, lit up their world. Finding the joys, the sleepless nights, all the things that children bring, only to have it tragically come to an end. Two months before Ruby May's second birthday, she passed away. And so here is David Jacks dealing with the grief of having to learn not only what does it mean to be a child that's lost a parent, but what does it mean to be a parent that's lost a child. And in the midst of him, in that grieving, just less than a year after that, he loses his wife. So hear me, before he's 25, he lost a mom, a stepmom, a daughter, and a wife. If there was ever a story of somebody that had the excuse to shake their fist at God and walk the other direction and complain about suffering, it was him. But what did he do? He trusted in the promises of God. Now, he was young enough that he could start over. So he did find a second marriage shortly thereafter. And again, this tragedy continued. They were pregnant within the first couple of uh, years of their marriage and seven months into the pregnancy, a miscarriage. Again, difficulty and loss. And so it took quite some time before their family stabilized and he had a little girl and a little boy. And so just before his 36th birthday, David Jacks decides to move from Georgia, come to Fort Worth. And he decides to live on this Rogers Street, not too far from where we're standing and sitting. And it was there that he met another family, Burl Avery Couch. Now Burl was a native Texan, and he had served in the U.S. Army during the First World War. So imagine what he's seen. His understanding of sacrifice, his understanding of loyalty commitment, how his faith was shaped. And so he came back as a graduate of Baylor and ended up serving on the faculty at TCU. And he married his wife, Lillian. They had a little girl, and it was there in this season of being two young families that the Jacks family and the Couch family intersected, right over there on Rogers Street. And I'm sure their conversation, while we don't know the details of it, is similar to what we would have with our neighbors, trading stories about the Great Depression, how they had to overcome, what they had lost, their need to persevere. And I'm sure in the midst of those conversations, maybe it was among the the husbands, maybe it was among the wives, maybe it was all of them sitting around a table. At some point, they start talking about their faith, what God's calling them to do, where is he leading them? And Burl Avery Couch turns to David Jackson and says, you know, a couple years ago, me and my wife and 18 other people, we felt God was leading us here to reach this campus. We'd love for you to be a part. And something stirred within David Jackson's heart. He said, we're in. And they committed to the formation of this University Baptist Church. And in 1933, this church formation that had been planted just four years prior was all of a sudden facing some of its own growing pains, some of its own struggles. And part of those struggles were, again, financial in nature. And so they had a choice. What do we do? Do we run? Do we turn inward? Do we do something else? Maybe, maybe we didn't hear God clearly. No, what they said is, no, we know that together we can endure this. We can get through it. And so Burley Recouch and David Jacks mortgaged their homes. <laughs> the modern-day equivalent of selling property and possessions to underwrite the church's debt and helped propel it forward for the next 90 years. 90 years that you and I get to celebrate in a couple of weeks. Beneficiaries of their sacrificial generosity. That's the legacy of the founders of this church. It's the legacy of the early church. Will it be ours? I want to close with this quote that I think encapsulates this all so well. You guys have heard me read from 
Willie James Jennings several times in this series because he writes it so poetically. And this is what I think he helps us understand is that when we give, we're not giving to a budget. We're not giving to an institution. We're giving to each other. We're giving to this commitment of what God can do in us and through us. We're doing all that we possibly can to declare the ruling reign of Jesus Christ through a spirit of love and generosity. Here's how he says it. A new kind of giving is exposed at this moment, one that binds bodies together. What was at stake here was not the giving up of all possessions, but the giving up of each one, one by one, as the Spirit gave direction and as the ministry of Jesus made demand. Thus, anything they had that might be used to bring people into sight and sound of the incarnate life, anything they had that might be used to draw people to life together in life itself and away from death and the end of the reign of poverty, hunger, and despair, such things were subject to being given up to God. What is far more dangerous than any plan of shared wealth or fair distribution of goods and services is a God who dares impose on us divine love. Such love will not play fair. And the moment we think something is ours or our people's, that same God will demand we sell it, give it away, or offer more of it in order to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, or shelter the homeless, using it to create the bonds of shared life. This will be the new direction born of this moment. It is the direction, church, that God is leading us in, the direction we need to continue. And so let us respond. Let us join arm in arm and wade out into the waves of this world and be ambassadors of rescue. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess, God, that so often we cling so tightly to things that distract us from you, limit our ability to see who you are and what you can accomplish. I'm grateful, Father, for this church. I'm grateful for the people within it. I'm grateful for the way you stir us regularly and consistently in so many ways. And so I pray, God, that over the next few weeks, all of us would enter into this season of commitment, this this spirit of worship, that you would continue to confirm where you're leading us and into whose lives, and what it is that we can do to demonstrate sacrificial, generous, and cheerful giving. Father, that you can show us where we can serve. You can can unleash this fire within us, God, so that we can erupt in praise and give you all the glory that you deserve, and that we would be overwhelmed, Father, with stories of your divine rescue. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen.